Welcome to the Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey. How can we transform our organizations and get ready for success? Today, we'll talk about the power of moonshots together with the bestseller author, Safi Bakal. And now, relax and enjoy. Hello and welcome back. Today, we have the honor to have on the phone the author of the national bestseller, Loonshots, Safi Bakal. Safi, welcome to the show. I'm Mark, delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Let me give some background to our listeners about you before we start with the interview. Safi received his PhD in physics from Stanford University and his bachelor degree summa cum laude from Harvard University. After working for three years as a consultant for McKinsey, he co-founded a biotechnology company developing new drugs for cancer and led its IPO and served as its CEO for 13 years. In 2018, Safi was named Ernst Young New England Biotechnology Entrepreneur of the Year. In 2011, he worked with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors on the future of US science and technology research. His book, Loonshots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases and Transform Industries, has been mentioned in Washington Post 10 leadership books to watch for in 2019. Inks 10 books you need to read in 2019, Business Insider's 14 books everyone will be reading in 2019, and I'm sure of that, and Adam Grant's new leadership books to look for in 2019 as well. And I also noticed from your Twitter account, at Safi Bakal, that's spelled at s a F-I-B-A-H-C-A-L-L, that your book has been listed as number three in the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, it's a little surreal. I was in a cave kind of thinking about it and doing the research uh, for three years, not really talking to, to people very much. And so to come out of the cave and uh, see all the lights, talk to people and see that uh, the ideas and the stories are resonating, is, uh, it's a very nice feeling and a little shocking. <laughs> Safi, I really have to ask, when you look back at how your career and life have developed, did you ever dream of finding yourself where you are at today? Uh, absolutely not. I'd never imagined this. And I, I don't think I ever imagined any of the turns in my life. I uh, grew up a child. I was a child of two scientists, astronomers at uh, Princeton University. And I studied science and mathematics, played some sports. And I assumed I'd be a scientist playing sports for my whole life. Uh, and uh, I just got very curious in my late 20s, early 30s about what was it that this rest of the planet, the 99.99% of the people on the planet that are not physicists, what did they do for a living? I really didn't understand. I'd never been inside an office building. So I just got very curious about how the world works because apparently it doesn't work with physicists pushing the wheel. So uh, I got very curious. I went into the uh, consulting world in uh, New York with a company called uh, McKinsey, which was a very useful kind of first education. You get to work with a lot of very interesting leaders and learn what they do well and learn even more from their mistakes. Uh, then I wanted to be involved in something that felt a little more meaningful to me that was, you know, I had friends who had loved ones who were getting sick and um, 
Uh, eventually my father got sick with a type of cancer as well. And I just, I thought it would be enormously powerful and exciting to be wake up in the morning and be part of developing new kinds of treatments that could give people more time on earth with their loved ones. And so I left consulting and started a biotechnology company developing new drugs for cancer. And I did that for 13 years. And uh, you asked, was I surprised to find myself in any of these? I was totally surprised to find myself in, in any of these positions. But I don't really think about the bigger picture about you know, how did I get here? I think about, am I excited to be here? Am I excited to learn? Am I still curious about what I'm doing? And if I am, then it's a sign that I'm on the right track. What would you say then that is the main purpose that took you to write this book? Uh, well, in my uh, time working in the biomedical field, I remember being frustrated. For example, when my father got sick and I, uh, with cancer and I tried to help him, tried to find products, drugs in uh, either out there or in the labs that could help him with what he had, there was nothing. And I remember just being incredibly frustrated seeing products or ideas that looked promising but were stuck inside the basement of either large companies or small companies or research labs and not getting out. So the purpose of writing this book was to help individuals, teams, and companies get those projects that are stuck, get them out into the world where they can help people, help them get them out faster and better. That's awesome. I mean, I've been working a long time with these kind of topics. And honestly, I think that uh, in your book, uh, Loon Shots, you present the best way I've ever seen around structuring transition phases in a balanced way and how to nurture those crazy ideas to turn them into either learnings or successes. Uh, I've seen lots of companies and teams struggling uh, to crack that code. And I believe that uh, very soon will become uh, your book a must-have for any CEO and executive that want to share that philosophy you'll be mentioning now and also is serious about succeeding in this volatile, uncertain and complex business environment uh, we are in at the moment. And uh, for those listeners that uh, who haven't still got your book, but I'm sure that they were, they are going to get it very soon, I can promise that. Let's talk about uh, the concept of moonshots uh, for a moment. Could you explain to our audience uh, what is a moonshot? Sure. Well, everybody knows what a moonshot is. It's a big goal, a big destination, an exciting right. uh, goal of something like curing cancer, eliminating poverty. But as it turns out, the ideas that really change the course of science, business, or history rarely arrive with blaring trumpets and red carpets dazzling everybody with their brilliance. Very often they are dismissed, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades, and their champions are written off as crazy. And since there wasn't a good word in the English language for that, I made one up, moonshots. I love it. <laughs> So within that, uh, that dimension of loonshots, uh, in your book, you define two different types that we can find, right? That's right. Uh, the, there is a uh, trap that a lot of companies fall into, um, especially here in the U.S. and Silicon Valley, especially technology companies, but even more broadly, which mm -hmm. is focusing on one of the two types and not the other. So I'll explain what the two types are. Are. So the first one I think of as a product loonshot, or I call it a P-type. And that's a product that 
people say will never work for even thinking back a hundred years, the telephone, people say, oh, you know, that'll never work. Or even if it does, it'll just be a toy. And that was people's first view of the telephone or the transistor. There's no way you can make a electronic uh, switch, uh, you know, without using a filament like in a vacuum tube or the digital mm-hmm. camera or the um, a personal computer. These are all products that people said couldn't work. The second type, I call it a strategy type or an S type, which is a strategy or a different way of doing business that involves no new technology, but people say it can't work or it'll never make any money. For example, when there was a young 30-year-old named Sam Walton here in the U.S. and he had an idea of wanted to open a retail store. And his uh, plan was to do what everybody said, which is to open the retail stores. He liked to sell things. He liked to have stores that sold stuff. He wanted to do it where everybody said you should do it, which is in a big city. Why? Because that's where everybody is. Unfortunately, his wife didn't like living in big cities. She wanted to live in a small town. (laughs) And she said, uh, well, honey, Sam, I'm happy to support you in your dream of opening a retail store. Uh, You can pick anywhere in the United States as long as the town is less than 10,000 people. And so Walton was uh, happy being married, wanted to stay being married. He also liked hunting quail. That's a type of uh, game, like a very large chicken. And uh, Mm -hmm. he knew that there was one place in the United States where there were four states. The corners met in a point. And each of those four states had four different hunting seasons for quail. So if he lived at the tip of one of those states, he could go around all year and hunt quail all year. So he put his store in Bentonville, Arkansas, which was very few people far away in rural America. And of course, that store became Walmart. There was no new technologies. He just located his store somewhere else Hmm. in rural America, made it bigger and make it slightly cheaper. So that's an S-type loon shot because there was nothing new about the technology. And so understanding these differences is important because most people, especially people running technology companies, just keep thinking bigger, faster, better, bigger, faster, better products. That's the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. And they miss the small changes in strategy that are the really big deal. And that's why it's important if you're managing a business to understand both types. From what you're saying, loon shots then seem to be these rather crazy ideas, and Walmart was a, a great example about one of them. Uh, what it looks also like the likelihood that a portfolio full of these loon shots uh, to succeed, it's also not very big. So what would you say, like uh, more or less, uh, what is the likelihood of having a portfolio of those type of loon shots uh, that a company has to, to win at least one time? Yeah, I did, no, that's a very important question because people often... Think about innovation, of course, and leaders and managers when they sit around in a management team or an executive team and they, uh, and I've seen this several times, they pat themselves on the back. They say, well, we're a very innovative company. Uh, you know, there was this young guy who came to me six months ago with a crazy idea and I gave him a check and said, go try it. Well, mm. the point about nurturing loonshots is that most crazy ideas fail. That's what, why they're called loonshots. 
Um, you know, in, in my industry, in the drug discovery industry, when we work on new drugs, the odds of um, even a drug project that makes it into early human clinical trials, what's called phase one clinical trials, the odds that it will succeed are 10% or less. Hmm. In the film industry, the odds that a new movie, which is like a loom shot, will succeed and make a return is typically, you know, 10% or 20% or less. And if you look if you're honest about, you know, the really novel business ideas, the odds that anyone will succeed are very low, almost by definition. And that's a little hard for people to understand who are managing businesses and are used to thinking in terms of certainties and high probability bets. You know, for example, if you're, if you're running a large business and you have a core franchise, whether it's selling refrigerators or building computers or printing a newspaper, you're used to kind of making sure that those products with high probability get to customers on time, on budget, on spec with the quality you specify. Loon shots have a high failure rate. So instead of looking for 99% success, the success rate is more like 10% or if you're lucky, 20%. So it's a very different mental mindset managing core franchise and managing a portfolio of loon shots. And you have to have different hats. You have to understand that the ideas and the systems and the tools and the processes that you apply to managing your franchise where you want to minimize risk and you want to get as close as possible to 100% on time, on budget, on spec are not only the ones that won't work for managing loan shots, they're a disaster for managing loan shots. You're mentioning now two, three times, Safi, franchise. Can you describe so we all, all the listeners can follow on that stage, what is a franchise and how both are balanced? Because from what you are saying, it seems that both groups are important. Yeah, it's important to have both. So if you're running a bit, let's say your business is to uh, sell refrigerators, mm -hmm. then your core franchise is selling refrigerators into markets. And you have customers who are buying refrigerators from you and they expect to get them on time, you expect to manufacture them on budget, and you expect your customers to get them with the quality that you say. So your core franchise is the core main product that you've been selling, let's say, for years, and customers are buying from you for years, and that's what they know you for. And okay. that's your franchise. The loon shots are the crazy ideas. If you're selling refrigerators, maybe your crazy idea is to make an internet-enabled device that listens to your grocery needs, just to make mm -hmm. one up. That's a crazy idea. It's not exactly in your market. It may or may not work. And you don't even have the customers there yet to prove it. So one is your franchise. One is your loon shot. And the point of that you asked about about a portfolio is that most loon shots will fail. And if you want to have a sustainable pipeline, you need to have a portfolio of loon shots and manage them with the understanding that you want to, it's like a lot of little plants. There are a lot of little seeds. You want to water those seeds and see which ones grow. You never really know in advance what will work, what mm -hmm. not until you, it gets out into the market with a little prototype and you test it. So if you want to succeed, you have to balance your franchise and your loon shots separately. You have to manage them hmm. separately. You have to apply separate tools and separate ideas. For example, total quality management or Six Sigma or these processes, management processes that are designed to minimize risk are excellent for delivering your franchise, for getting from 95% on time to 99% on time. But they're a disaster for loon shots. 
If you want to try crazy ideas, you want to try as many as possible, and most of them will fail. So if you insist on high success rates, people are not going to take the risks that you need them to take. That's why you have to separate the two, your loon shots and your franchises, and work, give them different homes with different management tools. And if you're large enough, if you're lucky to be a large enough organization, you want to separate the development of those two projects. You were mentioning uh, mindset, that you need a different mindset to deal with this type of uh, loonshots, especially. And there's one concept that you talk in your book that now just came to my mind, and that's the concept of false failures, right? Uh, and I guess that when you expect a quick return, uh, that could be a trap that companies can fall into. Uh, I recall that when I was reading your book, it came to my mind, for example, the barcode invention. Uh, it was invented back in uh, 1952, as you may know, in the US by uh, Norman Joseph Woodland and uh, Bernard Silver. And actually, the invention took over 20 years uh, and few failures before this invention became commercially, as we know now, the successful automated supermarket uh, checkout uh, system that we all use. Uh, do you have any other example that would uh, uh, be related to this type of mindset needed and uh, the trap of uh, false failures? One example is social network. Do you use Facebook, for example? Yes, I do. I think there's quite a few people in the world that use Facebook, still use Facebook, despite all its recent problems. But the example of Facebook is an interesting, or even Google, are both are interesting examples of false fail. So when Mark Zuckerberg uh, was first circulating the idea among investors, and in, I think it was 2004 or 2005 of a social network, at the time, He certainly wasn't uh, the first social network. It was, there had been maybe two dozen social networks and they had all uh, failed. They'd most, most of them had just gone up and either plateaued or failed to grab an audience. And right around the time that he was doing it, there had been another social network called Friendster and it reached a million some users quite quickly. And then it's, people started to leave Friendster for a different social network called MySpace. And so when Zuckerberg was going around with his business plan, investors said, well, look, the social network stuff, it'll never work. It's just a fad, like clothing. People wear one pair of jeans for one season, then they wear it from another brand, then they wear it from another brand. Their fads shift, just like as we've seen in 2004, 2005. Everybody leaves some social network and then moves on, just like Friendster Everybody, it looked good and then everybody's leaving it and going to MySpace and, you know, six months from now, it'll be another one. So that was a false fail. There was an investor named Peter Thiel who said, who started to investigate that false fail. And he said, is that really true? Are social networks like jeans? Do they just, do people just leave every six months and go for a different brand? And so he asked, he had some friends inside Friendster and he asked them for their user data and he looked at the retention And he said, wow, that's amazing. People are staying on this site for hours every day, hours, despite the fact that he knew from using it and from other people using it, that the site was not built very well, that the website kept crashing. And then he realized that people were leaving Friendster, not because the social network was a bad business model. If you have a website where people stay on the website for hours, it's not a bad business model. They were leaving it because the website wasn't very good. It was a software coding problem for building websites. And he had understood that they had failed to put some backend stuff, you know, in the software that would scale it from hundreds of users to millions of users. So Friendster was a false fail. And he wrote a check to Mark Zuckerberg for $500,000 when 
many other people passed. And he sold it eight years later for a billion dollars. So that's why understanding a false fail can be very important. And there are many examples in businesses of false fails, killing ideas, where other people come in later, take those false fails and run with it and make money. Google search was another example where people passed because they said, oh, we've had all these search portals on the web. They're just like yellow pages online. You know, anybody could do it. It's not very useful. You can't make any money in search. We don't see how you can make any money. You just type a word and, you know, hundreds of sites can tell you where that word is found. That was the false fail of search. Google figured out a way you could actually make money with it. And so there's understanding false fails and investigating failures to see if they're true fails. We tried the idea and the idea is flawed, that's a true fail, or we tried the idea, the, result, the experiment didn't work, but the experiment was flawed. Those are very different kinds of fails, and it's important to understand that you can have both. The problems of the world cannot possibly be solved by skeptics or cynics whose horizons are limited by the obvious realities. We need men who can dream of things that never were. John F. Kennedy. Actually, just see on your background uh, the figure of the dark Darth Vader and uh, Darth Vader and <laughs> also the Star Wars figures, and it kind of remind me. Also, you talk about how James Bond, for example, or Star Wars uh, was initially false failure, right? Yeah, I, I use uh, uh, James Bond as an example of a loon shot. Why it's important to nurture loon shots, and that's well known in the film industry now. Uh, wasn't so well known years ago, but when Ian Fleming wrote the first James Bond novel, uh, which was uh, Dr. Let's see, the first James Bond movie was Dr. No. But when he wrote the first James Bond novel, he, you know, was a writer, had been a journalist. He had been uh, in uh, British intelligence during the Second World War, but he aspired. He wanted the kind of life, the James Bond lifestyle. His friends that he spent time with had a lot of money and he wanted to have that kind of lifestyle. And so he tried to sell it to the movies, to the film studios, because he knew that getting your novel into the Hollywood film studio uh, system was where he could make uh, real money. But every year for nine years, the studios rejected him. They said, this is a crazy idea. There's no way Americans are going to believe that some British spy who wears fancy clothes and drinks fancy <laughs> drinks could actually save the world and no one's going to really care. And so after eight or nine years, he eventually gave up. Uh, he was writing about a novel a year until uh, two producers who just kept pestering him to license the rights to them, uh, acquired the rights. He sold the rights to them. He, was, he had had a heart attack. He was sort of giving up already. He realized he's got to do something. It wasn't working. And they were not particularly successful producers. One had just bankrupted his company. The other was not really a professional film person. He was just sort of playing around. And eventually they sold it to a movie studio called United Artists. But United Artists also didn't think that the movie could do very well. They had a 32-year-old actor who had been a milk truck driver and had been in maybe two movies. One was called Darby O'Gill and the Little People. One had something to do with Tarzan. And so they're like, there's just no way anybody's going to believe that this, you know, former milk truck driver can be this super agent who saves the world. So let's just open it in these two drive-in theaters in Oklahoma and Texas and then forget about it. And they mm -hmm. did. And that was the first James Bond movie. And it became the longest running, most successful film franchise in history. So then mm -hmm. 
the story there is that you want to nurture loon shots to challenge beliefs. You don't worry about disruptive innovation. Or if, if I had one wish, one magic wand, I would wave it and take those words disruptive innovation and cross them out of every dictionary. I agree with you 100%. The problem is that, like with the Sam Walton example, he wasn't setting out to disrupt the retail industry with a disruptive innovation. He was just challenging beliefs. He had no mm -hmm. idea, and he was the first to say, we had absolutely no idea how big the market is. Film studios had no idea. They weren't trying to disrupt the movie industry with a great franchise. They had no idea. So disruptive innovation is a phrase that makes sense if you're a professor or a historian <laughs> looking backwards in history. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to say, yes, Walmart, 20 years later, looking backwards at Walmart 20 years earlier, yes, it disrupted the retail industry and all those other competitors went out of business. Or yes, James Bond became this great franchise. Even the transistor, when it was invented, nobody had any idea what to do with it. It, was, it didn't work very well. It wasn't very reliable. They were trying to make it for telecommunications, but it, it just didn't work stably enough. Eventually, five years later, the first application was in a hearing aid. So the people in Bay was the most important invention of the 20th century. But did the people in working on that transistor say, I've got a great idea. They went up to their bosses and said, we've got a great idea. Let's disrupt the hearing aid market. No, they were trying to challenge conventional beliefs and Years later, looking backwards, you could say, of course, they disrupted everything. So mm. you nurture loon shots to challenge beliefs, use disruptive innovation, just if you're a historian looking backwards. I can see how that makes a huge difference on the, not just how companies can redefine themselves, but the impact they can have in the market. And taking a look at the practicalities about the processes and uh, how can we make this actually take place, uh, I believe that the key relevant factor is the teams, right? How teams execute on those visions. So let's talk about teams for a moment and see how they face, especially uh, adversity and failures, because uh, if I understand right on, uh, on what you're saying about Loonshot Adventures is there's a lot of that, a lot of learnings and a lot of failures on the way. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your book how Gary Kasparov, uh, the chess champion, how they seem to have a rather good approach towards unexpected outcomes. Uh, could you walk us through uh, what was his approach when he didn't get the expected results during one of his uh, chess matches and the learnings on how to use that strategy back in business and also in our lives? Sure. The, uh, what I took from Gary uh, Kasparov uh, was one of the ideas that he used to describe what made him so successful as a chess champion. So to explain what that has to do with business, let, let's talk about sort of three different levels of strategic thinking. And the, the first okay. one I would call level zero, which is after you finish launching a product or executing a strategy, it goes well or it doesn't, you don't look back at all. You don't reflect on... Uh, what worked well and what didn't. That's sort of level zero. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. that's actually pretty common. Uh, you know, and I, I was guilty of that, especially when I was younger and first starting out. <laughs> you know, you have a small company, you're racing forward, you try some stuff and uh, it doesn't work. And you're like, oh, well, that didn't work. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, actually, so that's sort of the lowest level of strategy. You don't actually pause to say, well, 
let's try to understand what are the lessons here. Um, whether it worked well or it didn't, you know, you don't pause. And that's actually pretty common. So the next level, level one stra- is, is after you launch a product or execute a new strategy uh, and you see how it does, you ask yourself, what are the learnings from that outcome? Mm-hmm. So let's say we launched a new type of computer and our mark, we expected to get a market share of 10% and we got uh, 20%. So what it exceeded our expectations. So what did we learn that? Or let's say you expected to get a market share of 10% and you got a market share of 2%. So you did really poorly. Either way, you analyze the outcome of what just happened and say, what can I learn from that? For example, uh, you know, our computer didn't have this type of screen and our competitor did have that type of screen. And that's, we seem to think that's why customers preferred it. Uh, the competitors, and therefore in the future, we should make sure we have this type of screen. So that's outcome. Mm-hmm. In the military, they call that uh, an after-action report. Try to incorporate those learnings for the future. So that's good, but that's not great. What made Gary Kasparov so successful is something I would call a system mindset, where he looks not at the outcome, not just at the outcome, but how he arrived at the decision. So here's what I mean by that in chess, or here's what he means by that in chess. Your typical chess player will say, I moved you know, pawn to uh, king's bishop uh, three, and uh, that move was a really bad move, and I lost the, the game because of that move. So um, you know, I should make sure if the, 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 the pieces are aligned in this way, the next time I should make sure not to do that again. So that's level one thinking, what, uh, looking at the outcome. But what Kasparov talks about is to keep asking, why did I make that move? When he moved pawn to king's bishop three, what was he thinking? How did he arrive in his mind at the decision that pawn to king bishop three was the right decision at that time with that opponent? So how did he formulate the 15 different options? And what made him pick, what was his evaluation criteria that made him pick that one move and not the 14 other moves? And that's Hmm. saying, how do I create options in my mind? How do I evaluate those options? What criteria am I using for those options? So that's analyzing the system. And the reason the analyzing the system is so much more powerful is because just analyzing the outcome, sort of level one thinking prevents you from moving pawn to king bishop three again. But if you analyze how you made that decision, that could affect all your decisions for all your future games. So it could affect your entire play if you find a better process. So let's translate back to the real world, or not the real world, yeah. the real uh, you know, daily life of managing ourselves or managing our business. Mm-hmm. Let's take, for example, to stick to an individual, let's say you made an investment decision. A friend comes mm-hmm. to you, says, hey, I've got this business I'm starting on the side. Would you like to support my business? Would you like to write a check to support my business? And you say yes, and not surprisingly, it ends up a disaster and you lose all your money. Now, the outcome is I lost all my money on my friend's side project to build furniture at home and sell it and open a furniture store. So you could say, well, okay, his furniture wasn't very good. And so in the future... Anytime a friend comes to me with his idea of opening a furniture store, I'm going to look more closely at his furniture. And if I don't think it's very good, I'm not going to invest. 
Okay, well, that's level mm -hmm. one thinking. But level two thinking is your own system. How did you arrive at the decision to write this person a check? And if you start being honest with yourself, you say, well, he was a friend and he looked very needy. And I felt that if I said no to him, I would be very guilty and it would hurt our friendship. And now you say, oh, that was what was in my mind. I wasn't really thinking about the quality of business. I was letting the emotion of my personal friendship get in the way. That's why I wrote him the check, if I'm really honest with myself, not because I thought it was a great investment. So then you say, well, how should I change my system for making my decisions in the future? You should say, well, maybe what should I should do before I make any decision, I should create a checklist. You know, check one is analyze the business. But check two is analyze the emotions. To what extent am I influenced by my emotion and find a process that makes me honest, like ask my wife <laughs> or ask my other friend who's independent. <laughs> do you think I'm being influenced by emotion or do you think I'm being influenced by rational business logic? And then make a checklist. If I think I'm being influenced by emotion here more than business logic, make write down for myself all the reasons this might be a disaster. Write down all the ways this might go wrong. If we lose money, then I'm going to feel bad, and then he's going to feel guilty, and then my friendship might even be worse with him. And create alternatives. Tell him that I make as a rule that I don't invest in friends' decisions. So what I mean by level two thinking there is go to understanding the system by which you make a decision personally. What is your checklist for making an investment, for example? and change that checklist. The reason that's so more powerful is that you save not only the mistakes of investing in furniture businesses, but in all sorts of other things, like buying stocks or buying other businesses or making other investments. You learn to separate emotions from you know, rational business logic a little bit better. So that's analyzing the system. And when you apply that to teams and companies, it's the same principle. Rather than the team getting together and you know, let's say it was eight people that launched a particular product and rather than those eight people get together two weeks after product launch and say, let's analyze the outcome, what worked well, what didn't. They say, let's say it didn't work well. And they say, you want to ask, how did we analyze the decision to launch that product two weeks ago? Let's say you launched a computer with a computer screen and the screen wasn't as good as your competitors and your customers didn't like it. And so that's why the customers weren't buying it and you lost market share. How did you make the decision to launch that product with that screen? Was it one person? Were there other people in the room who already knew that information? If they didn't, why didn't we know that information? Maybe we should change our process for gathering competitive information and doing market tests. If they did know that information and they didn't share it, why didn't they share it? I can see there's something extremely uh, interesting on the team side. Uh, let me ask you one deeper level of analysis on especially how a team handles what you were talking about now on understanding and getting onto the system mindset, because recognizing a mistake in front of the whole team can be kind of uncomfortable and it requires, I believe, a type of maturity for that team, right? So what would you say that... Uh, What, how could companies support this kind of team development so they feel comfortable doing what you just said? Because it already, you know, uh, was going through my mind. How can somebody not take this personal when you're discussing what you're talking about? That's a great, great question. You're absolutely right. 
uh, it is uh, very painful to admit mistakes, not only to yourself. You know, I made a stupid investment decision, for example, just by my and, uh, hmm. you know, that was uh, a flaw. And it's painful to admit flaws. It's painful to share flaws. It's even worse in a team and even scarier in a team situation where people want to look good in front of their peers. Not only that, they're fighting for promotions in front of mm. their peers. So you're asking a great question, which is, how do you get to that level of honesty? So there are a couple of things there. Firstly, uh, every team should have a team leader. Otherwise, it's going to be a little chaotic. So it has to start from the beginning before you get to the after action report or the postmortem saying, we're going to do this and I, I'm going to set the expectation that we're going to have a very honest timeout feedback of a, a, a two-hour meeting at the end of this process. It could be a month, it could be two months, it could be six months, it could be a year from now, where as a rule, we will have an outcome assessment, but also a system assessment of how we made the decision. So you set expectations, you go into the meeting, and you say it is, first you establish a higher purpose. You say, mm -hmm. there are two ways we can do this. We can all do the usual form of business where we keep to ourselves what we really think because we're afraid of hurting other people's feelings. We're afraid of creating mm -hmm. conflict because saying things that are difficult creates conflict and that's always a tough thing to do but we have to realize that if we want collectively to get better as a team collectively if we want to do better than our competitors we're going to have to take an uncomfortable two hours to put on the table start with what we think work well but also where we think we can do better in how we make decisions as a team for mm -hmm. example how do we, did we go about and collect competitive market intelligence well enough as a team? Did we go about and test early prototypes well enough as a team? When we got that data, did we share it honestly? Or did some people in the team feel the need to please the team leader or the CEO and massage the data to make it more like what they thought? And those are painful things to talk about. So how do you do that? It's very important for the leader there to start by setting that tone. Often what helps, at least I've found in my own personal experience, is to be vulnerable, is to start by saying, here's what I think I did badly. And let's each go around and collect anonymous feedback. So one thing is for the leader and all leaders to preemptively set that expectation, we're going to do that. If you do it right at the end, after something goes badly, people are going to be much more defensive. It went badly, so now everybody's going to look for, for fingers to, you know, where to point blame. But if you do it mm -hmm. at the beginning and you say, I don't care if, if the outcome is good or if the outcome is bad, either way, we're going to have a two-hour totally honest system mindset assessment. How did we arrive at our decisions? It's equally important to do it if things go well because you might have just gotten lucky. You actually launched a bad product with a bad decision-making <laughs> process. You know, people had all sorts of important information that wasn't shared. The leader didn't listen, uh, didn't follow a reasonable set of processes for getting the best ideas on the table. Yet your competitor was even worse. They stumbled. So you got lucky and you hmm. won.
So you don't want to keep doing that. You actually want to learn from that. In advance, you say, look, we're going to have a system mindset. You, number one, you do it in advance. Number two, you keep emphasizing the purpose. The purpose of this is for us to win in the market one year from now, two years from now, three years from now. We will never win unless we improve how we arrive at decisions. Because if our competitors are improve, if our competitor is Gary Kasparov, and he's constantly improving how he arrives at decision, he's going to kick our ass. So we better do this. That's number two. Number three, if you are the team leader, you set the stage by admitting all or th- thinking about all the things, or admitting all the things you think you could have done better, and putting it out there for discussion. And that will open up and give people more freedom. And then secondly, you, you, if you're the leader as part of that, when people raise their objection, their ideas, you don't dismiss them. You know, you might put all of the things on mm-hmm. around on a wall on a post-it and then quietly have people vote, you know, with little stickers, which they think are the most likely contributors. And then that way you identify the top two or three in some certain kind of honest way to surface what people really think. And mm-hmm. as you know, and as I know, having managed teams, surfacing what people really think around the table is a very tricky art form. That's right. Most people are scared to speak up, especially in a group, unless they're incredible extroverts and incredibly self-confident, which is pretty rare. Mm-hmm. And your job as a leader is to surface that stuff because what they're holding back could be very valuable. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. So that process, as you, I think, sort of said, works quite well if you are a mature, self-aware leader. I was certainly not a mature, self-aware leader when I started in my early 30s. <laughs> Well, I can see myself there as well. I mean, I had a huge crash because of that misunderstanding when I was 30 years old. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, and I think that's pretty normal uh, when you first start out or when you're younger, because it requires an enormous yeah. amount of uh, self-awareness and maturity. So one of the things that I found enormously helpful, especially in the first few years, is to have a third party independent trusted person facilitating mm-hmm. that exercise. And the key Makes is a, tr- a trusted person. So for example, at my group and my team, we had uh, one guy, he was internal. At some point we had external people, either one can work. The most important is that they're trusted. So mm-hmm. in, in my uh, team or company, there was a guy who uh, you know, was a generation older than me. He was probably at least 20 years older than me. Uh, and he had been a, an athlete. He had been a former football player here in America. And he had a very uh, straightforward, honest, no-nonsense style, and, uh, but very serious about what we were doing and trying to win as a team. And everybody trusted him. I trusted him. Other employees trusted him. You would tell him something and you knew he wanted to help you be the best version of you that you could be. And then he would treat what you told him in confidence. And everybody just knew that about him. And so when he came into the room, he could help teams be honest in ways that were often difficult, as you say, for the reasons that you say, for teams to be honest. So they were afraid of what people around them might think. They're afraid of their careers. So when you want to have those important meetings, Either you as the team leader, if you've reached that level of maturity or self-awareness, or even better, if you have a third party, sometimes before that meeting, you meet one-on-one with individuals on that team. 
privately mm-hmm. and you surface what are they really thinking? Where did we go right and where did we go wrong? And that's private information. But then in the course of the group session, you try to make sure those ideas get out and in front of the group in a mm-hmm. non-threatening way. So those are some of the tools or techniques that I learned mostly the hard way uh, through doing it wrong many years, uh, to try to do a system mindset and a postmortem in an honest way to get the best ideas on the table. Makes a lot of sense, especially when as leaders, uh, we try to create this psychological safety and build trust within the team. So this system mindset is nurture and then the rest can, can follow. Also, I read in your book that uh, there's other dangers as well. Like, you know, we can be very passionate leaders as well and misunderstand what that means. Can you just talk for a while about the Moses trap? I love the way you describe and the name you gave it to it. So what is the Moses trap? Well, the, the Moses trap is this idea. It's just kind of, it's built on this myth that's very popular in our culture today of what it means to be a great leader. And mm-hmm. you see that myth emphasized over and over in popular magazine articles or popular books of the great leader as this uh, Moses that stands on top of the mountain and uh, (laughs) raises his staff or her staff and anoints the chosen project, the holy Mm. moonshot. You know, Steve Jobs on the top of the mountain raising his staff and saying the iPod, that's going to be it. That's going to be the chosen project. And uh, the problem with that is that that's much more myth than reality. That's not how the great leader is led. And usually, if that's how a leader is leading, it usually ends up in disaster. So, for example, uh, when Steve Jobs, uh, in his first time at Apple, when he was in his 20s uh, and had started the company with Steve Wozniak, and they had built the Apple II, which turned, became a good product for a while uh, and did well, Uh, He was like that. He was sort of the Moses and saying, now we're going to do the Macintosh. The Macintosh was sitting there. There was this other guy, not as charismatic, working on it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Jobs had tried to work on the franchise, the Apple III or the Lisa Project. And those were kind of a disaster and didn't go very well. So he sort of moved aside and he took this Macintosh and he said, now we're going to work on the Macintosh. And he stood on top of the mountain And he said, everybody else is kind of a bozo who's working on the franchises. And he created a lot of dysfunction. So the people who were working on the franchise, the Apple III, the next generation of the Apple II, took to wearing a button with Bozo the Clown, picture of Bozo the Clown and a red circle and the line through it. We are not bozos. (laughs) Try my best. And the street between their two buildings, the one that was where Steve Jobs was working on the Macintosh and the one where the others were working on the Apple III project, was uh, called, the hostility between those two groups was so large that the street between their two buildings was called the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. Oh my God. (laughs) People started leaving on all sides. You know, the the franchise was supporting the company. It was 90, 95% of the revenues of the company Yet Steve Jobs was insulting it. He was the Moses on the top saying, you guys are idiots, including mm-hmm. Steve Wozniak, his co-founder, left, and all the good pe- many of the good people left on the franchise. But that hostility wasn't good for the Macintosh project either. People started leaving on that project. And when the Macintosh launched, it did really poorly. It was a terrible product. It had a great advertising, but the first generation of the Macintosh 
was uh, too hot, too slow. It didn't work very well, and so customers didn't buy it. And they rapidly lost market share, and the franchise lost market share, and Apple as a company was headed for bankruptcy. So when Steve Jobs Hmm. led like a Moses, it was a disaster. And so he was asked to leave by the board of directors. Uh, And he continued to lead like a Moses. When he started his next computer company, he kept focusing on product, product, product. It's all about bigger, faster, better. Let's make the next computer. Hmm. Many people may not remember what it was, but he was basically trying to compete with his uh, former company, with Apple, by making a more expensive, bigger, faster computer. The problem is there was no market for it. People didn't want to pay $10,000 for a bigger, faster, better computer when there were lots of other things around. So that was a disaster. It's only when he came back later, 12 years later to Apple, and he didn't lead so much like a Moses, but he got a terrific product designer, Johnny Ive, who created many of the Apple products that we designed, many of the Apple products that we now have in our pockets or on our wrists. And then he got a terrific soldier to run the operations, a guy named Tim Cook. He managed less like a Moses on the top of a mountain and more like a gardener, balancing the crazy artists working on these new ideas and the soldiers who are delivering things on time, on budget with the franchises, making sure that the ideas got out of the nursery, the little baby ideas, the little baby projects got out of the nursery and into the field on time and making sure that they got feedback from the field on time. So the Moses trap is when a leader, like the early version of Steve Jobs, stands on top of a mountain and thinks he or she knows which is the right loon shot and raises his staff and anoints that loon shot rather than managing like a gardener thinking about the balance between a portfolio of loon shots and the success of the franchise. So the lesson from that story is be a gardener, not a Moses. From what you were saying now, I got the impression that uh, soldiers uh, during this kind of transitional phases and uh, and situations where the company is changing rapidly will mm, most often experience the resistance towards change. Because from what you're saying, uh, there's some traps that the leader can fall into, but also the soldiers and the artists can find themselves into those uh, situations. So what would you say, you know, there could be many sources of uh, resistance towards uh, change, but how companies can approach to nurture both a bit what you were saying now and uh, face and overcome the resistance in the, in the best way possible? Yeah, that's a good question. It starts by understanding the fact that there will always be friction between the soldiers who are managing the franchise and delivering Mm-hmm. products on time, on budget to customers, and they're bringing in the money. Mm-hmm. And the artists who are working on crazy new ideas and are having fun and spending the money, there will, <laughs> there's no way there won't be friction between those mm-hmm. two groups. They speak different languages. For example, the word risk, the English word risk is a bad thing to a soldier. You know, if you're going on a battlefield, mm-hmm. if it's a high risk battle, that's a very bad thing. If you take the risk out of that battle, if you de-risk the battle, that's a very good thing. If you're a commander, a battlefield commander, and you tell your general, I've really reduced the risk, he will pat you on the back and say, that's fantastic, you have de-risked this battle, congratulations, soldier. On the other hand, if you, you go to an artist and say, you've taken all the risk out of your art, that's a horrible insult. If you tell an artist there's no risk in your art, that's terrible. As an artist, you want to try 10 things and throw away the nine things that really 
don't seem to work. One thing that works is great. But if you go to a soldier and say, and let's say his job is manufacturing planes, the soldier isn't going to sit back and say, you know what, let's put 10 planes in the sky and let's see which nine fall down and let's keep the one good one. That's not how you manufacture planes. So they're totally different languages, totally different systems. They come from totally mm. different places. So you have to expect that there will be friction. And that's why the job of the manager is less about picking out the loan shot, less about telling Johnny Ive this thing is great or this thing is not great, mm -hmm. and more about managing the tension between the two because that's the failure point of new ideas. The failure point is in the transfer between the artists and the soldiers. The soldiers will always resist individually. They may love an idea, but collectively they're trained to be on time, on budget, on spec, reduce risk, and new ideas always have mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of risk and they take a lot of time. They take time away from their jobs. So your job as a manager or leader is to manage the transfer between the artist and the soldiers because that's the greatest failure point. That's the greatest source of friction. And so you have to create the teams, the systems, the processes that can reduce that friction. It will never be zero. It will always be there. Yeah but you have to prioritize that as your first job rather than your ninth or 10th priority. I see that friction even getting sometimes uh, on a worst level when we, now and then, I'm just saying now and then, we might have some individuals spending more time on politics uh, to advance on their careers, uh, right? So to understand this phenomenon, I think it's interesting to take a look at also what you present in your book, at how the system on incentive is set up and how to design uh, proper motivation and uh, schemes to, to treat this kind of an avoid what you call the return on politics. So it's a simple and complex question, but how do you take politics out of the equation? Well, it's very tricky, the, uh, but it goes to one of the main points, which is thinking about structure rather than just talking about culture when you're dealing mm -hmm. with companies, because uh, and by structure, I mean how you design the incentives in the organization. So the example I often use, culture is the patterns of behavior, what you see in the surface. Mm -hmm. uh, and structure may be under, is what's underlying those patterns of behavior. And mm -hmm. the reason that's so important is that changing culture is very hard. No amount of forcing people to watch videos for two hours or hold hands and sing Kumbaya will change culture if the incentives are wrong. And here, here's an example of what I mean by that. So if we think about a glass of water, it could either be if you stick your finger and you can always slosh it around. And that's because the molecules are moving. That's the pattern of behavior. You see they're always sloshing, they're running around everywhere. It's a liquid. On the other hand, as you gradually change the temperature, all of a sudden those molecules will line up. They'll be completely rigid. Every molecule will be 2.8 angstroms from the next one, not 2.7 or 2.9. The, hmm. the pattern of behavior is totally changed. Now, there is no CEO molecule with a bullhorn saying, okay, it's 33 degrees, everybody, or you know, one degree Celsius, everybody... <laughs> run around and be free. No, wait a minute. It's minus one degree Celsius. So everybody locked down. There's no amount of yelling at molecules to change their patterns of behavior that will make a difference. But a small change in temperature can get the job done. A small change in temperature can melt steel. And hmm. when you trend, that's more than just a metaphor where you can actually translate that into looking at the underlying incentives. And then a glass of water, okay. there are two forces. 
One wants to make molecules run around and be free, and one wants to make them line up. They have fancy names and physics and science. One's called entropy, one's called binding energy, but doesn't matter. It's just one makes them want to behave one way and one makes them want to behave the other way. And as you gradually adjust structure, things like temperature or the amount of salt in the liquid, small changes in structure can affect the balance of those two. Similarly, when you bring people into a team or a company, you create two forces, two incentives. One is their stake and outcome, how much equity. When you're small, you have a lot of equity. Everybody's united because your project will either make you a millionaire or leave you unemployed. But when you're large, something else matters, a different force matters, a different incentive, which is perks of rank. Now, my project can work or fail, but my incentives, I have greater incentives from getting promoted. Whether my project works or fails five years from now, no, you know, who knows? But if I get promoted next year, I could get 30% higher pay. So there are these two forces between stake and outcome and perks of rank. And as you gradually change elements of structure, like which do you reward? What do you reward in your company? Do you reward project success or do you reward rank? Are most people paid with, by how their project does? Or are most people's pay associated with whether they're a vice president, a senior vice president, or executive vice president? If you reward rank, you will create a political culture. Everyone will be stabbing everybody else in the back and trying to bury their projects and promote their own so that they could get promoted. If you reward results sense. and ranks doesn't matter very much, then people will unite around their projects. You will create a more innovative culture. So that's the example of structure versus culture. Structure is what do you reward? And culture is the pattern of behavior that you see on the surface, just like structure is the balance of two forces in a glass of water, and culture is the pattern of behavior of those molecules. So it sounds like a metaphor, but what makes it interesting is that you can actually write down the equations that describe the incentives, and then you can solve those equations, and you see that there's a sudden change inside companies when the perks of rank begin to be larger than the stake of outcome, and that's the sudden change when companies will go from embracing wild new ideas to rejecting them. Just like a glass of water will suddenly change from fluid, liquid molecules running all over to ice. Makes a lot of sense. And actually, you recall me the article that was published, written by you in the Harvard Business Review. So we're going to put down in the comments for those of you that want to read it. And that article was referring to the formula you are mentioning now. So that's a must read, apart from the book, of course. Uh, and as you were talking about this, it came to my mind example from the 70s, from uh, the, the car Ford uh, Pinto. Uh, for those of you who don't know about this case, the car the specs were said not to exceed uh, either the $2,000 in cost or the £2,000 in weight. And during the process, any decision that threatened these targets or the timing uh, of the car introductions were discouraged. So there was, at some point, there was a trade-off made between uh, where the fuel uh, motor was placed. And that caused a lot of those cars to explode in impact. So the kind of incentives that they had put into the company it took to create that car, but it had a huge trade-off that it was that uh, the car would just explode even if it was a small, a small hit with it. So one of the recommendations uh, that you are pointing in your book is to find the figure of the chief incentive officer. What is the role of this figure? It starts with kind of the example that you were mentioning is it's very easy to create perverse incentives. And today mm -hmm. in most companies, 
the way we think about incentives is really outdated, like 20, very, you know, almost 50 years ago. I agree. We have people in the HR function is often viewed, human resource, the personnel function is often viewed as just rubber stampers. What's your title? Here's your salary. Bye-bye. And if you have a complaint <laughs> about it, well, that's our system. Uh, and then, you know, maybe 50 years ago, people said, you know what, let's give people stock options. That'll be great because now they're equity holders in the company. And so now all these companies give stock options and think that they're doing something great. Well, let's think about that. If you are at, uh, let's say, you know, just to pick a company from, you know, my industry in medical research, Pfizer, not to pick on them, just, mm -hmm. but, you know, you have a, a, a hundred thousand employees and 50 billion in revenue. And now let's say there's somebody, you know, 11 levels down from the CEO who's working on a project and you give them stock options. Now, how much does that really affect your behavior? If the company, your little project could move the needle of the company by not even a fraction of 1%. If you work really hard and 24-7 and nights and weekends, maybe you'll move the, the, the revenue of the company by one one-hundredth of a percent. So you'll move mm -hmm. your stock option by one one-hundredth of a percent. That's not very motivating in terms of a financial reward. I mean, of course, there are other rewards, intrinsic rewards, but you're giving them these stock options. The idea is it should have some effect on behavior, but you're just wasting it. If you're at a large company and you're giving stock options to the junior person on how the company's revenue does or the, how the company's stock does, it's a waste of money. It's called a, in economics, it's called a free rider problem. It means that the, that employee 15 levels down gets a free ride. If the company's revenue goes up, his stock goes up, great. So he might as well, and it doesn't really connect to the work that he does because it's such a big company. So he might as well spend his time, not so much on his project, but on twiddling his thumbs and playing solitaire online and convincing his boss that he's useful because <laughs> then he can increase the pro you know, probability that he stays. And if a year from now, the revenue has gone up, his stock option has gone up. Great. Meanwhile, he could be on the phone looking for other jobs. And that's a good use of his time because if the stock goes down, then he just lost money on that stock option. Now he can go look for another job. So uh, it's a free rider problem. So the point of a chief incentive officer is that there's so many either perverse incentives like the Ford Pinto, where you reward them for sales, mm -hmm. but you don't look at their income because they could spend a lot of money and write giant checks to buy customers. And now their revenues goes up, but actually their profits go down. So there's so many ways to make simple mistakes. Uh, and a manager doesn't really have time to think about that because he's busy putting out fires and trying to align the team. He's not an expert on perverse incentives. And more than ways of making mistakes or avoiding wasteful bonuses, there are all sorts of things that matter to employees beyond just financial, beyond just the hard equity. You can think of that as soft equity. Let's say you have a designer working on uh, some product, a coffee machine design mm -hmm. or some ad design. What they really care about and what they live for is the recognition from their peers. It's motivating to them to be able to enter their product in a design competition of all their friends that they went to school with 10 years ago and have a chance to win. For that, they'll work really hard. So the things that motivate, into, you know, Fred may be different than what motivates Joe, may be different than what motivates Mary, Maybe different than what motivates Elizabeth. All of them are a little bit different. You know, Joe may have uh, uh, a mortgage and he really needs the money. So what he cares about is the bonus. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary might want to have uh, a better, uh, she is really passionate about certain projects and really dislikes other projects. So for her, the biggest reward is freedom of choice. 
If she does well, she gets to choose her next project. Now, a, a manager doesn't have time or energy to create custom incentive plans for each employee. So what you could do, companies have chief technology officers whose job is to be strategic with a minimal, with a fixed budget, how do I get the best technology? Or chief revenue officers with a fixed marketing budget, how do I get the highest revenue? So why don't they have a chief incentives officer who says with a fixed compensation budget, how do I get the most motivated employees? How do I design something that's, you know, that's even better for Joe or for Fred or for Mary or Elizabeth? How do I avoid wasting stuff like stock options, but creating more customized things? So a chief technology officer exists to make sure everybody has the latest gadgets and their systems are working well. But which would you rather have? A company where everybody has the latest gadgets that's working well, but the employees are kind of pissed off and not motivated and not incentivized properly? Or a company where the employees are the most aligned and the most motivated and the most incentivized among all your competitors. I would argue that that second thing is even more important than making sure everybody has the latest app on their iPhone. It's a weapon. I think that's a great dimension to, to reflect upon, especially when introducing what it would be the, the roles of the future in companies to get in, into the scenarios you were describing. Let's play, let's play a little game, Safi, just came to my mind. Sorry to interrupt you, but if you were interviewing me uh, to, to, to be a potential chief incentive officer uh, in your former company, which kind of questions would you ask me to make sure that I was the right candidate? What do you think motivates people? That's one. Which other two? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's several, you know, obviously, what if you find works well in motivating people? What does not work well? Why? How would you go about creating alignment in an internal team? Because, <laughs> you know, if you're going to change the incentives, a lot of people are going to object. So how would you go about mm -hmm. creating alignment and getting buy-in for your new ideas? And do you, you want to see firstly that the people, that the person that you're talking to has thought more deeply than let's just pay everybody a big bonus if the year is, does well. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that they understand that there are financial components, that there are non-financial intrinsic motivation components. You want to make sure that they understand that different things matter to different people. It's not the same answer for everybody. You want to make sure mm -hmm. that they've understand and seen perverse incentives. When have you seen incentives go wrong? How have they gone wrong? Hmm, how, would like you prevent that. That? how would you prevent that in the future? And you want to ask them about how would you create a system where people are more motivated by their projects and less about rank. It's more about nurturing good ideas and seeing them successful and less about getting promoted. How would you do that mm -hmm. as a chief incentive officer? I think that makes it very clear. Uh, thank you very much for going through those questions. I know also that uh, many of our listeners will be wondering how to do exactly that, because sometimes it's clear that they have to have somebody like that in their team, but it's not so simple to be able to find one just because the system mindset, I believe, as you're describing now, needs to be also part of this uh, leader uh, way of being. And the level of maturity has to, has to be there. On a personal note, Safi, 
one chapter that I was, I have to say, positive surprise to see because most of the books which are talking about similar topics that you are talking, they always disregard this factor. And that's the importance of nurturing personal relationships as well. And maybe touch me close because uh, I feel very related to my personal case uh, and especially you know, after my crash in the 30s to see what uh, really made it. Uh, so I, I would get the help needed to go through those moments. So support, as you mentioned in your book, does not come from things, but from people. Uh, I'm curious to find out how important that part has been for you. Well, enormously important. I think I, uh, like you, I didn't understand that when I was uh, younger, when I was in my 20s or early 30s, especially it was I was very task focused. And I think a lot of people who come into a management or leader, leadership job from a more analytical mindset, uh, mm -hmm. I had a scientific training, um, focus on tasks more than people. And that's a very common mistake. Uh, and there are people who are very good at that, who have focused more on empathy and understanding, uh, even from a young age. I was not one of them. I was very focused on tasks. And you learn, firstly, in the professional setting, higher up you go and the larger your organization gets, you're not getting things done. You're not the person mm -hmm. who's making the product. You're not, if you're the person who's you know making the product or having the ideas, you're in big trouble because mm. job as it gets larger, your organization gets larger, should be to help the people working around you, your key lieutenants, become the best that they could be at their job, to get things out of their way and to help them develop into the best managers and leaders that they can be because they're the ones that are getting the work done. And occasionally you, you have to uh, break ties and make tough decisions when you can't get sure. uh, everybody aligned. Uh, but most of your job is around making your key lieutenants uh, successful. And so most of the job is about relationships because if you are relying on authority of position to get stuff done, that's also not going to be very sustainable. People have to want to listen to you, uh, believe you, trust you, want to get things done, and want to do a good job working together with you and together with part of that team. So it's enormous amount is about relationships in the professional setting. And that, that took me a long time to learn. But on the personal side, uh, which I think is what you're referring to towards the end of the book, I talk about right. our, our nurturing loon shots. Those often will take years. Those are the crazy ideas that people are dismissing for long periods of time. And you will face many stumbles, the three deaths of the loon mm -hmm. shot, things will go wrong. So how do you persist? And so for me, I, uh, I remember things in mnemonic. So I write SRT, spirit, relationships, and time. And so spirit is mm -hmm. about keep coming back to the purpose of why you are doing what you are doing. And everybody has some noble purpose. It may be different for other, you know, for me, I was involved or part of creating new treatments that could give people on, uh, give people more time on earth with their loved ones. And that was just a very meaningful, personally meaningful thing for me. And that was the purpose mm -hmm. of what I was doing. So one is you keep coming back to purpose. For others, it may be to empower people or to spread joy or to uh, reduce poverty, help others in some way. There is some purpose. And if you search for it, you will understand it. And that will be important to keep in your mind what it is. 
The second is relationships, as you mentioned, which is that when things are tough, it's a small group of people around you that will be your support system. Exactly. You can't turn to your door or your car or your house or your coffee machine. I mean, I like coffee and it helps. <laughs> you know, your chair is not going to give you support, but people can give you support. So it means mm -hmm. having the right people around you and investing in those relationships because relationships should not be one way. If they're one way, they're not real relationships. They have to be two way. You want to be there for them. They'll be there for you. And it has to be the right. You can't keep 500 people around you. You can keep three or four or five or six or seven important people, you know, reasonably close. So you want to make sure those are the right people that add energy, that it's a two-way relationship and that you invest in those relationships, that you don't just focus exclusively. When you get obsessed about a loom shot, it's easy to let them go. But you have to mm -hmm. step back and say, it's spirit. You have to keep coming back to why am I doing this? The relationships are a critical part of giving you energy to keep going and to overcome all those hurdles. And then time. Time is about being very mindful about how you're filling up your calendar because when you're nervous, when you're anxious, when things are difficult, one easy thing to do is just to put lots of stuff on your calendar that feels like it's mm -hmm. important. And then mm -hmm. you get the little satisfaction of getting it done, but they're not important and they're distracting you and there are better uses of your time. So you wanna be just as thoughtful about your time and what you say no to as you are about your relationships and what you say yes to or no to and that. So those are the three things that I kept in mind. Be very thoughtful and careful and mindful and strategic about spirit, why I'm doing what I'm doing, relationships, investing and keeping the right people around, and then time, how I'm spending my time, what I choose to do and not do. So those are the three things that kept me going. I love that, especially the, the one of understanding why I do what I do, not from my from my head, but from my heart. What is the true reason that drives the purpose of, uh, of what I'm doing? Uh, you know, I could be talking with you for, for hours and hold you in the call for a long time, but just to close uh, on the podcast for today, let me ask you a couple of, uh, couple of last questions. And I know that you have been talking in hundreds of different conferences and meetings all over the world, but here's the deal now. Uh, <laughs> what is the question nobody has ever made you that you wish they would have made? What is the question that no one has asked? Nobody me has ever made. Yes. And you wish they would have. <laughs> Uh, what is the question now? And is I've gotten so many questions. It's honestly, as you say, it's, uh, I've met with so many teams and companies and people and had so many discussions. I, I feel like I've gotten a, a ton of questions. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of fun when I meet with other authors, which is not a big portion of my time, but I spent a lot uh -huh. of my time writing about, you know, what was the hard, some of the hardest things about writing and what some of the most fun things about writing or the reactions that you're getting, you know, the, to some extent that that's a little, I, I, the management and leadership that, that you and I talked about, I, I do mm -hmm. have a lot of discussions about that, but of course I spent the last three years of my life deep in this little cave here, this little <laughs> surrounded by books and, and writing. And so that became a big part of my life. So it's a little, it's kind of fun when I meet other folks who have gone through the ups and downs of writing and talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that life because that was, uh, uh, and I will, I'm sure, do that again. So it's sort of fun to talk about a little bit what it was like to be in a cave for three years and then come out of the cave and see light <laughs> and talk to, talk to humans again and hear their reactions. And um, it's pretty fun. It's pretty uh, mm -hmm. 
cool that these crazy ideas that I put on the page that I don't even know where they came from. They came from reading all these books around here and, and uh, that they resonate it for people and makes a difference for people mm-hmm. in their lives and they seem to enjoy it. So that's been nice. And, uh, you know, it's been really nice to hear these uh, reactions to these crazy ideas that it, people seem to like it. <laughs> Absolutely. And especially it makes you think, at least for, for myself, uh, and related just to the last point when we were talking about relationships. I was thinking this morning uh, when I woke up and I was preparing for the interview with you. It's, uh, you know, if I had some kind of uh, traveling powers, uh, time traveling powers, and I could go back in time and visit my, my younger self, I would give that a specific advice. And it's how important it is to nurture the relationships for those that will be next to you regardless or what happened, because I believe that without those people that have been in my life supporting me, being to my side and giving me purpose in those really, really nasty days, uh, I wouldn't have been able to make it through, especially feeling successful, not because of success, success in business, but feeling successful just for uh, being lucky to have those type of, uh, uh, not just family members, but also friends next to to those moments. Uh, So, now I'm just coming to my mind, if you had that choice as well, and you could go back in time and meet that younger CEO you were talking about a while ago, which are the, the top three advices you would give to yourself? I think I would give one, one piece of advice, mm-hmm. which is uh, lead with your heart, not just with your head. I love that. Big thumbs up. So Safi, that was all for for today big thanks i know how busy you are at the moment so i really appreciate the time you took to be with us and i'm looking forward to see how your book becomes the best not just the bestseller that it is now but uh, the one to have in all of our libraries in the near future thanks for having me mark that was a lot of fun great something talk to you and i'll let you go to the next call <laughs> bye 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 So that was all for today, and thank you very much for being a loyal listener. Let us know if there is any topic you would like us to cover down in the space for comments. Have a great rest of the week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our bi-weekly podcast. And remember, this is about spreading and sharing the knowledge. So feel free to forward this audio to anybody you believe could get any benefit out of it. Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey.